I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, to our text that we are currently studying. I'm enjoying some of the feedback from some of you, uh, opportunities to discuss uh, the incredible breadth of the passages of Scripture that we have been studying over the last few weeks, and welcome your interaction. If you have questions, thoughts, uh, please, please feel free to uh, respond and uh, ask for clarification of the verses to look up, um, correction if your thinking is wrong, whatever you need, okay? All right, Romans chapter 8. We're going to read this passage together. Kathy, right? We're going to bring this up, okay? Would you all read this together with me this morning? Let's begin. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Of this passage of scripture, Sinclair Ferguson in his book called The Christian Life, which I would heartily recommend to you if you don't like to read big books this is a book you should get it's a book uh jason you had it at, at my house the other night 120 pages something like that small like that size book okay uh if you want clarification on the issue of the doctrine of salvation how god works to bring us to himself it's a book i would highly recommend to your study it's probably got 21 chapters in it so none of them are very long but it will give you a lot of food for thought in relationship to the good news of the gospel of Christ. So I'm going to recommend that book to you. I've been reading that over the last few weeks. In that book, he says this in relationship to Romans 8, 28 through 30. He says, something is seriously wrong if we regard these words primarily as a source of theological controversy. Okay, something is seriously wrong if we regard these verses primarily as a source of theological controversy. And what is he saying? He's basically saying, if you let the imponderable portions of this text keep you from the promise that God is laying before you, he said to him, he's saying, that, that is an astonishing thing that we could hear such an exhaustive promise that is meant for believers to bring encouragement and comfort to their hearts. That's the purpose of this passage to assure us of the incredible love and, and exhaustive sovereignty of God in our lives. It is to be embraced and we are to pillow our heads upon this truth. We are to comfort our souls upon this truth. Because if it is anything, it is this. It is a promise that Paul says he is assured of, perfect tense, with a lasting consequence in his Christian walk before God. These truths, Paul says have affected me internally and exhaustively. And my life, because of these truths, will never be the same. So don't let the parts that you don't understand keep you from receiving from God a massive promise that is meant to encourage and stabilize your heart and life. My desire, my goal over the last few weeks, going through these verses, I'm still in the verse 2, which we're supposed to be one sermon. And I think I'm in my third today. I think I'm in my third sermon on this topic. 
because it is, when you start studying this text, it is going to so deeply encourage your heart. So I want to encourage you, along with Sinclair Ferguson, to not let the controversy, the imponderables, cloud the massive promise that God is giving through Paul to the church, to every Christian. This is the truth we should wrap our arms around and say, God is working in all things on behalf of those who love him. That is those who have been called according to his purpose. Let me just review the three thoughts that we looked at over the last two weeks. Number one is this. God's plan for us is his all-encompassing and saving ultimate purpose. God's plan is his all-encompassing, saving, ultimate purpose. That's what it means when it says God works all things together for good, for those who love him. Second thought is this from verse 29. God has purposed and planned to do every believer good in eternity past. Before the world came into existence, God set up a plan by which he would do his creation Everyone within the realm of creation that believes he would do them good. He would bless them and work for their ultimate and supreme joy and happiness. I believe that that plan is wrapped up in the two words, those that he foreknew, loved ahead of time, and those that he predestined, that is to mark out or to mark off. Both the people are marked off and the plan of their redemption, the plan for their supreme and ultimate happiness is marked off by God's sovereign plan. I believe that that aspect is inescapable in the text. The third thought that we started to look at last Sunday was this. God's saving plan and purpose affects and protects us in the present. And that is why Paul is laying this truth before the church in Rome. He means this promise to be a source of stability and spiritual encouragement for his brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering under the totalitarian government of a man named Nero. It is to them that he says, all the things that are happening in your sphere of experience, which included people being burned at the stake, lives being taken prematurely. He wanted them to know that in all things, God was working out an ultimate purpose of blessing and supreme good for his children. The promise that he gives is to affect us in the present. And there's two words in the text that help us to see how this encouragement comes to us. The words, he called and he justified. Let's just focus on this first thought. He called. So everyone who loves God, verse 28, has been called by God, which is an act in eternity past that affects the present experience of believers. Okay, it's something God did in the past tense that affects believers in their present experience. Let me give you a definition of called. I believe it means something to this effect. You can tweak this a little bit, but it means a divine summons that comes through the proclamation of the gospel. Okay, it is a divine summons that comes through to us today through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, why do I use the word summons? Because the call of God to salvation is stronger than a mere, if you want to come, you can come. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, I believe it is, Peter, in response to the people that have heard the message of the gospel, their hearts have been touched by the Spirit of God, they say, what must we do? 
And what does Peter do? He says, well, if you want to. You can believe and repent and trust Christ. No, here's what he says. In the imperative, two times. Believe in the gospel and repent of your sins. Both are in the imperative mode. He gives them a command from God. It is not merely an invitation. Okay? Uh, the Raider's son and our daughter are getting married in May. Okay? Some of our friends will receive from us not a summons. Okay? Do you hear the difference? It's an invitation. It's conditional. If you would like to be our guest at the wedding of our children, we're inviting you to come. About a year ago, I got a summons from the court. And just, you should know this so that you can know how to pray for me. There's a summons to jury duty. I remembered at 8 o'clock that I needed to be at the court at 9. You know what happened, right? By 8.30, I totally forgot that I had jury duty that day. Fortunately, Nita Dean's daughter, Lisa, is the court administrator for the jury pool. So I went in and just pleaded, I am who I am, okay? I do this all the time, okay? I mean, in a half hour's time, I forgot. But I want to tell you something. When I remembered at 9.15, you know what happened? Because I fear the law. Panic set in. Number one, that people would find out, okay? Through Lisa would tell her mom and that she might tell the church. And then you would, okay. But the other side was, I, the, the uh, judge could levy me with a fine if he wants to. Because it wasn't an invitation. It was a summons. Now, folks, please understand this. The call of God in eternity past is more than an invitation. Okay, there's no way that you can take the word he also called and reduce it to a mere invitation that you can say, ah, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. It's a summons that is in the form every time it's expressed in the gospel. It is an imperative to repent and believe the gospel. So it is stronger. However, it is a divine summons that comes through the proclamation of the gospel. Okay, it does not come to human hearts. In, in rare occasions, I've heard of this, where there have been people that God has given a manifestation of the truth about Christ apart from a verbal communication from a human individual. I've heard of it a couple of times talking to Victor John about what's happening in Islamic countries around the world. But there is, in their experience, a divine manifestation and proclamation of the truth of Christ. In, in the normal set of circumstances, the divine summons comes through the proclamation of the gospel. Here's the way Paul says it in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God. Unto salvation for everyone who believes. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the means by which God summons rebels to come sit at his dinner table. It is the, the means that God has chosen to use to affect the hearts of those that listen. Romans 10, 17, it says, after saying, how can they hear unless someone tells them the good news of Christ? Clearly the context. Verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's this broad invitation that goes out. And then in verse 17 of chapter 10 of Romans, he says, so then faith comes by 
hearing, meaning belief, the ability to trust in Christ, comes by hearing and hearing the word about Christ, Romans 10, 17. So the idea of being called is a divine summons that is affected through the power of the word of God. That should breathe confidence, confidence into our daily evangelism. Here's the question that comes to mind. Sometimes people look at the doctrine of sovereign election, God's work in our salvation, and ask this, does it kill evangelism? Well, it depends. It depends. If evangelism, taking the good news of Jesus out into the world around us, is a command from Christ, I can't let the prior work of God become an inhibitor to obeying his directive and call to share the good news of Christ. Why? Because the good news of Christ is the means by which God has sovereignly designed to affect salvation in the hearts of people. So when people say, well, God's sovereign in all these things, so I'm just going to go out and live my life like I want to. I don't have to share my faith with people. Let me be very clear. You cannot be obedient to the entire call and work of Christ upon your life unless you seek opportunities to communicate what Christ has done for you. It is a mandate that is placed upon the shoulders of every Christian. And when you do it, you should realize that when I do this, I am cooperating with God and sharing this truth that alters the eternal destiny of people by the mystery of God's sovereign working. I believe that the doctrine of God's working with us in the context of seeing people come to Christ, in fact, encourages evangelism and the joyful, not not the conflicted sharing of our faith, not the fearful sharing of our faith, the apprehensive sharing of our faith, but I believe that knowing God is at work should send us out into our world with absolute and utter confidence that God is working with us and communicating the good news that is the means that God uses to change hearts along with the work, powerful work of His Spirit. So the call of God is the divine summons that comes through the proclamation of the gospel. It is a summons that calls from every individual a response. Okay, that I believe is unmistakable in the text. But the thing I want to say is a clarification. This is what struck me last Sunday morning. The clarification is this. Our response to the gospel, to the call, is never an unaided response. It is never a merely human assessment of the gospel coming to understanding in my fallenness and in my under the dominion of sinness. It's not there that I see the gospel. It's when the Spirit of God shines the blazing light of biblical truth upon my heart that I am able, as He opens my eyes, to see the good news of Christ and to respond to the summons that God is giving. Our coming to Christ involves His enablement. Now, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Just have to go, uh, go forward a few pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. Because there is something fascinating in this passage of Scripture that relates to an understanding of this call of God and how it is so essential that God work in us to open our eyes so that we can understand the gospel. And this will cause you, when you share your faith, to pray and say, God, join with me in sharing the good news with this individual, with this friend, with this family member. Do your work in their heart. I can't do this alone. God doesn't lay upon you the burden of changing people's mind and converting their heart. He is already working ahead of you. This should encourage your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is writing. He says, verse 18. 
the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To someone without Christ, the message of a perfect God coming in flesh to bear their sin on Calvary's cross in their place sounds utterly foolish. The message about Christ is to those that don't know Christ. It just, it doesn't make sense to the person who is religiously minded, who thinks that a relationship with God is received or protected or encouraged by your behavior. And then Paul says this, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, is that a fascinating contrast? To those that don't believe, it sounds like foolishness. It doesn't penetrate the intellectual mind. It's not that it's not logical. It's just that it sounds like foolishness. Those that don't know Christ, it, it, they hear what you're saying. But there's no summons. There's no compulsion to respond. But to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. You look back on your conversion and you say, I remember. When God started to show me my sin, he allowed me to see what I was resistant to seeing. He allowed me to see the glory of Christ. And by his grace alone, there was a response of faith that led to an eternal difference in our lives. Uh, verse 21, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, through its intellect, did not know God, God was preached, or God was pleased, I'm sorry, through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Hmm. That leads me in a couple directions, doesn't it? Why are Christians reluctant to share the most beautiful message on planet Earth and so quick to share a good deal that we got on a car? Why are we so happy to share an accomplishment in the life of our child but reluctant to share the good news of Christ. You've got to sit and think about that for a minute. I think the answer is in this text. The preaching is of the cross is to the audience unbelieving foolishness. You know what they're thinking in their mind? You sound stupid. That's what they're thinking. The unaided mind that is resistant. It, it hits, but it doesn't penetrate. Why? Because in the wisdom of man can't. Why? Because it's beyond us. So if we say that I am in Christ because I chose to be in Christ, only because I chose to be in Christ, I, I don't see how what you believe is the biblical gospel. I don't. Because I can show you two verses here, and there are numerous others that say that it is foolishness, that the wisdom of man, that we, we, don't, we don't embrace it, we don't grasp it, we don't get it. Go to chapter 2. And there are so many verses here I could touch on, but just for the sake of time. Verse 2. Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Paul says, I didn't try with, with rhetoric, which in the Greek world was, it was the rage. If you could speak well, you were highly paid and highly respected. Paul says, when I came, brothers. Now, these are people who have already been affected by the gospel. He says, I didn't come. remember how I came. I didn't come with eloquence, with highfalutin language, as I preached to you the good news of Christ. 
that a child can understand, aided by the Spirit of God. Verse 2. Paul, why didn't you come with eloquence and superior wisdom? Why didn't you do that, Paul? It's the greatest message in the world. Wouldn't you give it the greatest language in the world? Paul says, no, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Folks, let that sink in. This is the message of the cross that God uses to awaken the heart by His Spirit to the glory of the good news. It's a message that the wisdom of man doesn't understand. It's a message that the world, please understand, they regard it as foolishness. And from my human side, I understand that. I understand that. I understand that it sounds odd. And so do you. And it's why you are reluctant to talk about the good news of Christ, but quite willing to talk about a good deal that you got at the store. You know what? I don't want to look foolish. <laughs> I am self-protecting. And so, if you share the gospel when it's going to make you look good, you've got to examine your heart and say, God, help me. Jesus Christ became a curse, Galatians says, for us. For cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And let's just be honest and say, I struggle with opening my mouth about what I have given my life to proclaim. Because sometimes I want people's respect more than I want to share with them the truth that God will effect to become a divine summons that will draw them to faith in Christ. I am self-protecting. I was talking to a brother just before the service. I wrestle with this stupid thing called pride. And it's the only, it is the only reason I can come up with for why at times I am silent about what matters most. There is no other explanation, folks. If you know the glory of Christ, there is no other explanation for your silence and you're talking about other things. If you don't talk about other things, then you're an introvert, okay? And I'm good with that. But if you freely share other good news, but not this good news, I think we need to go back to God and say, God, you have designed sovereignly to effect salvation in the heart of those without the Savior through the proclamation of Jesus. Help me to do that lovingly and passionately and consistently in my life. Because when I am doing that, I am cooperating with God in his work of redeeming people from lostness, bringing them from darkness into the realm of the glorious light of God. Go down to verse 6. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, meaning their wisdom is going to one day become useless material. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that had been hidden. This is the truth about Jesus Paul's talking about, and that God destined for our glory before time began. He predestined it for the glory of every believer when? In eternity past. None of the rulers of this age. Now, here's where I want you to focus. This just blew me away last Sunday morning. None of the rulers of this age understood it. Okay, the, the upper crust did not understand this message when they saw it lived out in front of them in the person of Christ. The rulers of this age did not understand it. For if they had, listen, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. 
If they knew who he really was, they would never have done that. Here's how deep human blindness goes. And I, the religious establishment in Jesus' day saw his miracles. They knew that the man who had a withered hand was organically healed. It wasn't like the shams that you see on TV where oh, my back hurts, my head hurts, I get this hurts. This, this was an organic miracle. A man with a withered hand from birth, Jesus says to him, stretch out your hand. I want you to hear something. He's not saying to the man, hey, you know, if you want to stretch out a hand, you can believe. No, no, no. It's a divine summons. Stretch out your hand. And God gives him the capacity to obey the command. The Pharisees know that he does the miracle because you follow the debate amongst them. What are they saying? Oh, that a miracle has been done. That, that's beyond doubt. But he did it on the wrong day of the week. He did it on the Sabbath. Folks, do you understand how blind is that? Do you see what I'm saying? They saw an organic miracle. An arm physically before their eyes, fully and completely restored. I don't like the day of the week he did that on. And you know what they do? They go out. It's in Mark and it's in John. They go out and plan to kill him. That is, that is, okay, if those people get saved, they need God help. Okay, we'll all concede that point, right? If those people come to Christ like Paul was one of them, of the Sanhedrin, one of the critics who condemned Christ to death, he needed a divine encounter. I didn't. May God help you. May God help you if you can't. If you can't see that you are in Christ because he called you and helped you to overcome this blindness that the rulers of the age were afflicted with, may God help you to see the glory of the gospel in its full amazing ramifications. Look at the next verse in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, okay, if they knew it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They simply did not understand the foolishness of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. However, as it is written, now please listen. No eye has seen, and no ear has heard, and no mind has ever comprehended, got it, conceived. What God has prepared for those, please notice the next word, who love him. And there I find my direct connection to Romans 8, 28. No eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, no mind has got its intellectual prowess around the gospel apart from God. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. You know what the church has done with this text historically? We have said this verse talks about heaven. Can I beg to differ in the context that this is talking about the gospel that Paul purposed to know among them because it was the power of God? There are better passages that talk about heaven. This isn't one of them. This passage is talking about the mystery of Jesus Christ that was hidden in the past verses 4 and 5 and has now been revealed to some people because the rulers of this age couldn't get it. And then he quotes from Isaiah. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And that text in context is speaking specifically about the coming of a Savior. The human mind, unaided by God, cannot grasp this glorious truth. But verse 10 is the one that will just drop you through the floor. 
If you're wrestling with pride today, in light of your salvation, this will kill it completely. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us. Please notice the next phrase. By the Spirit. Let's let that settle in. But God has revealed it to you. The rulers, they could not get it. The wise men of the age could not get it. Go back into chapter 1. Paul says, you know, the Jews were looking for a sign. God gave them one. They would not believe they were that blind. Greeks are looking for wisdom. God gave them that in Christ. Glorious. But they did not understand it. But then he says this. But God has revealed it to us. Now let me unpack us. Us is the church in Corinth. Us is the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that is saying, you know what? I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Kephas. They were schismatic and divided. They were a church that was quabbling over leadership. Who shouldn't, who shouldn't. They were a church that was infected with gross immorality. Okay, it's not a pretty picture, is it? They were a church that had a low view of marriage and thought that divorce could be granted under any circumstances, destroying the divine design. They were the church in chapter 8 who was willing to eat meat in front of someone that had been offered to an idol, not caring that it offended their brother in Christ. They were the church in 1 Corinthians 11 that was abusing the Lord's table as an opportunity to throw a party while the people that had less stood there hungry. That church. They were the church that was doubting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's to them. It's to them that Paul says, God revealed this to us. I hear my response to that is a staggering degree of humility. Think about your sin. Think about your pride. Think about your unwillingness to reconcile with someone that you've injured. Think about your desire to take from someone else that doesn't have much. Just think. Don't escape the ramifications of this text because you will miss a great blessing. Those that God revealed the gospel to did not deserve to hear the message. They were people like the church in Corinth. They were people just like us. But God, in his sovereign grace, apart from their performance, apart from a good track record, had revealed, had let them see what the rulers of this world could not understand. The call of God is a divine summons that overcomes darkness, that overcomes an inability to see and to grasp and to understand what eye has not seen or heard or comprehended. God opens the eyes and lets people see. And Paul's stunning statement, God revealed this to us. Get down to verse 14. I think this makes sense. He says, the man without the spirit does not, and I think the word in the original is a double negative. The man without the spirit does not, indicating he cannot accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Why? They are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Folks, here's what that means. If you heard the call of God sometime in your history, in the history of your life, and you responded to the divine summons, you did so because God affected an ability to see and a heart that couldn't see. And he gave you the ability the desire 
to respond to the goodness of Christ. And he did that with the powerful message of the gospel, not with a suggestion or an invitation. He did it with the command. Now let me say this. I believe that this text is flat out one of the most humbling passages of Scripture that I have ever begun to understand. I don't think that I fully comprehend it. The next part of Romans 8 says this. It says, those that he called, he also justified. He justified them. Now, I'll just unpack this word and I'm going to stop here. I know I have a lot more notes, but I'm just going to stop here this morning. Justification is what God called us to in the past and effects in our life in the present. Okay? Justification is something God called us to in the past, allows us to experience in the present. It is the status of everyone who has believed the good news of Christ. And I think it is critical as we go into the Lord's table this morning that you get your arms around this truth. Here's what it means, our present status. I am before God forgiven. That is to say, I am treated just as if I had never sinned. It is not a declaration of innocence. Okay? It's not that you're better than other people. Because you're not. It's that God, through the shed blood of His Son, has washed away your sin. And you receive from Him a status. And along with that, you are declared or pronounced righteous before God. It is the verdict of God that everyone who believes in Jesus in response to the call that comes through the message of the gospel, when they respond with saving faith to the good news of Christ, responding to the divine summons, they are given a status that they could never have earned. They are made right with God. They are given a new position before Him. I am declared righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 helps us so much here. It says, He made Him to become sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So here's what happens in justification. All of my sin is forgiven. And I am, I am given a new status before God. I am seen in the righteousness of Christ. Okay, I am given a new status before God, seen in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification, in this sense, is not subject to degrees. Okay, there are not, it's not like Aaron Pilch, having trusted Christ, can be more justified than Ryan Duvenek. It's not subject to degrees. It is a total pronouncement from God. Now, let me clarify this. It is not, how many of you play tennis or have played tennis? Okay? When you hit a fault, it's when the ball hits the net, but it land, you, didn't, you didn't mess up horribly. You messed up a little bit. And what do you get? So oh, That's a fault. I think that's the word, right, Dave? Fault. All right, you know what fault means? You messed up. You get another chance. Here's what some people think justification means. You came to Christ, 
and you trusted in him and he, just, he cleansed you from all your sin, he's giving you a second chance. I would have been like, oh, no, God, don't. Don't. He gives you something better than a second chance. And this is often misunderstood. He does not only forgive you of your sin, he gives you the righteousness of Christ. He credits to the account of your life in eternity the holiness and righteousness of Jesus. You see, folks, we need to understand something. It's not enough that Jesus died for our sin. He also had to live the perfect life that you and I failed to live because that was the debt we owed, isn't it? The glory of the gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life that I needed to live and on the cross bore the consequence of my imperfect life. That's taken away and this is given to me. I have a status of righteousness that is not subject to degrees because it's not mine and I never made any contribution to it. It is the new standing that everyone who responds to the divine summons through the word of God receives when they respond to that divine summons saying, God, forgive me and make me your child. It's not a second chance. It's not that you get a clean slate and God starts to write on the slate your sins. No, here's, here's how glorious and good God is. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. God anticipates that Jason Runyon is going to mess up after coming to Christ. God anticipates that Norma Lever is going to mess up after coming to Christ. And he knows she's going to have it really hard because I'm her son-in-law, okay? His, her son-in-law. God knows, graciously and glorious, that we will need perpetual cleansing. First John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, praise God. He is just and faithful and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, folks, let that settle in. If you know Christ, you have nothing to fear. Because your justification is secure. And the righteousness that Jesus Christ graciously lived for you is applied to your account. You owe absolutely nothing. Well, but it's true. You owe nothing to God. Save a debt of gratitude. That's all you owe him. It's a life that says it is for your glory. Thank you for what you have done in my life. Those that he called, that he summoned by the power of his spirit, opening eyes, and by the power of his word, convicting of sin, granting the gift of repentance and faith, he also justified. Sinclair Ferguson, in the book I'm reading, says this. While the child of God loses the, the sense of peace, when the child of God loses his sense of peace with God, finds his concern for others dried up, or generally finds his sense of the sheer goodness and grace of God diminished. It is from this fountain, justification, that he has ceased to drink. Conversely, if we can gain a solid grounding here, we have the foundation for a life of peace and joy. Now, I want, I want to quote from you a passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, what do we have? What's it say? You know this? Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have, you can say it out loud. I'm not going to say it. Say it. Peace with God. What does that mean? No fear of condemnation. When I stand before God, I don't have to be nervous. Did I do enough? 
Folks, the reason that love and passion dies in the hearts of Christians is because we don't drink from this fountain. We're spiritually parched and desperately in need of getting back to the cross. The glory of the gospel is that God has declared Christians to be rightly related with, with Him and to Him in spite of their sin. A Christian does not feel he is better than others. He knows he is not. Our greatest temptation and our greatest mistake is to try to smuggle character into this work of grace. How easily we fall into the trap of assuming we remain justified as long as there are grounds in our character for that justification. Paul's teaching is that nothing we ever do or need to contributes to our justification. Now, you know what that is? That is the ground of worship. If you find that when you come on Sunday morning, your heart is tentative and perhaps even cold in worship, if you find that you simply sing words, but there's no pervasive joy, no response, nothing, you have to ask yourself a question. Have I responded to the divine summons? Has amazing grace flowed over my life? And if you can say, yes, it has. I know it has. And you need to get back to the cross. You need to get back to a place where the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the wisdom of God humbles you and breaks you where you realize that all of my good works do not make God love me more. And when I live like the church in Corinth, he still loves me. He shouldn't, but he does. He does. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, um, if you hear his voice, the Old Testament says, do not harden your heart. Don't. Because God is not successfully ignored. Oh, he is frequently ignored. But he is not successfully ignored. This past week, I met a friend of mine from high school. His name is Steve Wetzel. He wouldn't mind me telling you his name. Steve was born to be a rebel. He was born to be a bad guy. <laughs> In school, he was just and talking to him. We laughed the other day. I haven't seen him for 32 years. I haven't seen Steve Wetzel since uh, my graduation. And my mom said she had run into him at church. That was very interesting to me. I went to my dentist uh, this past week to get my uh, teeth cleaned. Uh, the dentist is his brother-in-law. And his sister runs the office for her husband, who's the dentist. I come in, she goes, forget, right, I'll, I'll say what she said. Timmy, okay. call me Tim or PT, okay? Timmy, I haven't seen you for a long time. Stevie's here. I'm like, take me to see him. I mean, this is a young man who for, until he was 34, ran from God from 18 to 34, trying to escape the arms of God's love. Told me he dated a girl when he was 24. 
and broke up with her. Not a girl that knew Christ. Ten years later, her and a friend of hers were jogging past her, his house, his apartment on a regular basis. She says, I want to see you again. Strikes up a relationship with him. They get married. God's still not at work. I mean, God is at work, but not evidently so. They have a child. She, the unbeliever, says to him, the, the believer, we should take our children to Sunday school. They take their kids to Sunday school, and God begins to work and awaken in Steve's heart the good news of Christ. And God reaches out and through all things rescues him from a life of rebellion. It took me three years to get through that process. It took my friend Steve 20-some years. But the grace of God worked through circumstances in his life to bring him to a place where he saw that I am God's. And this life, truthfully, hasn't been a lot of fun. His wife has come to know Christ, which to me is a, this beautiful, the wisdom of God. And folks, I don't know where you are this morning. I know we come from all different places. If you don't know the Savior, hear the call. Respond. That's your responsibility before God. He gives you a summons. You need to respond. And if you know Christ, I hope that you can revel in justification. I hope you can revel in the fact that God overcame your blindness and called you in eternity past to be his child. And I hope you can take that promise and not let the, the controversy, meaning the, the unknowable parts of it, the imponderables of it, distract you from the glory of this truth. Because it is indeed a beautiful promise upon which we can pillow our very tired heads. Let's pray this morning. Father.